0: everyone, thank you for joining us. I'm Kelly Nichols, Dean and Professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Optometry, and I'm very fortunate to have my good friend and colleague, Dr. Walter Whitley here today to discuss an important topic, NK. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hi everybody, my name is Walt Whitley and I'm the Director of Optometric Services at Virginia Eye Consultants in Norfolk, Virginia. Excited to be here.
0: So a really important topic that we're going to discuss today is corneal sensitivity testing, how to do it, when to do it, and just some tips and advice in the diagnosis of neurotrophic keratitis. Um, Fortunately, there's been an expert panel that came out with some really fantastic advice about when to do corneal sensitivity testing that we'll be going over today. Um, This panel included Dr. Whitley here, who can tell us from his experience a bit what that was like. What was that like?
1: It was a great experience where it was both, as you can see, MDs and ODs were just sharing clinical pearls Mm -hmm. and just saying, hey, this is the condition, how can we learn more? And it was an opportunity for us to learn more from each other.
0: I think really importantly, not just the very worst cases, but I think that you had a good opportunity to talk about emerging cases and maybe how you can catch things before you get into those really bad cases from a prevention standpoint, which is really valuable to us and the patients. Alike.
1: Yeah. You know, one thing we did as well is we had different examples and scenarios mm-hmm. where we utilized or, you know, where are we thinking at NK, where, where do we use our treatments and, mm-hmm. and how it's been working for us clinically.
0: So the panel came up with a variety of different consensus points, and this is one of them, a consensus point regarding corneal sensitivity testing. We're going to be talking about another one in a couple of minutes here, but when should you do it? Because we understand that not all the time is somebody, not on every patient is somebody going to measure corneal sensitivity. We want to talk about what that looks like and how you do it. Um, but we both really feel that you know, there's a, a lot of overlap and perhaps make misdiagnosis with ocular surface disease like dry eye, and so any ocular surface workup should include a measurement of corneal sensitivity testing, don't you think?
1: Definitely. And you know, so in, in our clinic, uh, we have our protocols just like many of you, and so our technicians actually they start with a speed questionnaire. We utilize the MMP nine testing, the tear osmolarity. So the tech does a lot of this, uh, a lot of this uh, testing before we even get in the room. Uh, but then also, we uh, tell our, our technicians, don't touch the eye. Don't put anything else mm-hmm. in the eye. You now, why don't you check pressure? Because for us to fully evaluate the ocular surface, mm-hmm. we need to take look at the lids, the lashes, express the glands, have the patient look down, but then also making sure that we're looking at the staining. So if you do see grade two or higher, then those are patients where that's where I will do my corneal sensitivity testing mm-hmm. on those patients. I don't do it every single time, but you know, if, uh, if on every single dry examination. But anytime I see grade two plus stating our worst, then this is something that you, we really need to consider mm-hmm. and,
0: and in, in any situation in regardless. Any
1: situation. So,
0: in the dry eye arena, um, if we're talking more about not just your brand new um, evaluation, unless it's a brand new evaluation for you and they've been to multiple doctors and tried different things that haven't been successful. True. So, I think listening carefully to when a patient hasn't been successful with treatment and they've tried, so they actually have. Haven't just you know tried it once and quit. They've really tried, and you still see no response. You definitely should be considering um, sensitivity testing, especially if they have present corneal staining.
1: You do a lot of research. What is grade two staining? To, to, so everybody's on the same page.
0: Well, I mean, grade two staining for me, if you're talking about over the entire cornea, is that there's probably staining in at least four of the five regions. It may not be as much centrally. Sometimes it really is, but it's, it's, it's not. It's obvious staining, you know, mm-hmm. you can't really miss it. It's not usually the worst staining you've ever seen, but it's definitely measurable. You could take a photograph of it. It's not just a few dots here and there. So grade 2 is does have some significance, don't you think?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it's somewhere between countable and too too numerous to count. It's somewhere around there. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, you know, you can do dot counting like that and and in many instances in clinical trials people are looking at each of the regions. So superior, inferior, nasal, and temporal, and counting dots in each of those regions where just a few dots would be a grade one, and you know, 10, 15, or 20 or so would be grade two, and, and then more than more too much to count would be a grade three in each of those regions. But if you're gonna try and average it across the entire cornea, you're probably having some staining in each of the regions. Yeah. Except superiorly, you don't always see staining, but you should always look superiorly to rule out that there's some superior limbic conditions occurring. So recently, um, we gave a seminar in which we asked the audience, which was much like you, just folks that were listening for some continuing education, how familiar they were with corneal sensitivity testing, and we found um, the response was overwhelmingly that most docs don't do corneal sensitivity testing routinely, and I love that this was an honest answer. Because it's, that means that we have an opportunity to talk about when you should do it, so that we can get people thinking about it, especially in those cases where you see, where you have a patient who's not really saying that they have any symptoms or minimal symptoms, and then yet you see um, staining, which just seems to not make sense with what they're saying.
1: Well, one one thing that 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 poll also does, though, it shows that you test it, then you can have more of a diagnosis. Because we talked about the prevalence; it's rare, but it's, becoming less and less rare
0: right especially because we become more confident in looking and checking for it there's a lot of uh, probably misdiagnosis that's happened in the past I think of patients that I've had in the past where I I was likely wrong, I think. And if I had just done corneal sensitivity testing, I might have been able to help that patient better. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are patients that get lost in practice. They might try somebody else. They all end up with you, right, in your (laughs) practice. But they may move around. And so if somebody has moved around and they're still not receiving any aid, I really do think that's a consideration to look a bit more carefully. So in the situation where you're looking um, and kind of trying to incorporate corneal sensitivity testing, what other tests are you doing?
1: Well, you can see the various diagnostic uh, tests that, that are available. But going back to the history, that history is often key. And mm-hmm. just like you mentioned, you know, they, they've tried different medications. Maybe they looking at they have diabetes, they have other risk factors, history of herpes. Uh, but either way, we did the, te- we did the, the fluorescein staining. We, anytime we have grade two or higher, once again, test corneal sensitivity. You can see the various testing that we have here, uh, whether it's going to be uh, uh, corneal staining, the Shermer test, not something that most people really do. We do mm-hmm. it in clinical research, but, uh, you know, it, it is a test uh, that can be impaired as a result of the corneal sensitivity or reduced. Uh, cultures. I mean, this is something where you're seeing more of the advanced stages mm-hmm. of, the, of neurotrophic keratitis. If you're having this non-healing defect or this, this, this defect that came out of nowhere, an ulcer mm-hmm. uh, per se, we always want to make sure we're treating the infection first, if that's yeah. going on. But then treat and follow. And then if it's not getting any better, then we have to figure out what is our diagnosis mm-hmm. and take a step back.
0: Because there really are some strange infections you can have, like a canthamoeba can take a long time to actually be diagnosed because it can be misdiagnosed as well. Um, and, you know, a lot of us don't have confocal microscopy in our practices, but there are some situations in which practices might have that, and you can be uh, able to look at the nerves in those situations. And I guess that's important from a research perspective because you can see regeneration of mm-hmm. nerves in, after treatment, so I think that's helpful. It is really important, though, to rule out and talk about systemic immune disorders and other things that could be contributors to neurotrophic keratitis, and I think you mentioned some of those earlier love this chart. What do you Damn. think of it? It's like really helpful.
1: Oh, definitely. Because that's what we all want to know is when should we perform the testing and here. Here's some uh, great examples where it's strongly recommended or could be considered. Uh, on the left side that you're going to see the strongly recommended, and this is a, a paper from Dana, where the, what we just mentioned earlier, the persistent epithelial defect that does not improve, mm-hmm. uh, painless newly observed epithelial defect that the patient may have, herpes, we keep saying herpes, mm-hmm. herpes. I mean if it doesn't make sense on the cornea, it's, it's likely going to be a herpetic condition mm-hmm. that, that the patient does have. Uh, any type of risk factors, diabetes, glaucoma, and we're seeing that staining grade 2 plus or higher test corneal sensitivity. So that is where the strong recommendation is coming, but that's where you're gonna find we have more and more patients that, that have the condition.
0: Yeah, and I think if you have a practice that's largely diabetics or includes a lot of diabetics, you'll see under the could be considered category that even patients that just have poorly controlled diabetes would be worth looking at, even in the absence of a lot of excessive staining because it could be that you could catch them early before they develop into a neurotrophic keratitis, which uh, of course would be the very best scenario. But again, this is a really fantastic chart to remember about, because I don't think you'd think usually about corneal sensitivity testing in all your diabetic patients. And so certainly those that, you know, have staining. But
1: we should be thinking ocular surface issues in every single patient with diabetes. There's studies, Mm -hmm. one study showed 54% of patients with diabetes does have dry eye disease, Mm -hmm. but going back to the nerves and the the peripheral neuropathy and with significant nerves on on the Mm -hmm. cornea, uh, we have to look because the patient's not going to feel it because they're desensitive. Mm -hmm.
0: And I really do kind of want to just go back to the herpetic eye disease because in patients with neurotrophic keratitis, from what we know right now, about 77 or 78% of them have a history of herpes, herpetic disease. And so if you have a herpetic patient, even if they're good right now, it's really worth testing, you know, again, both eyes because you'll get an idea of the sensitivity differences between the eyes, which is really what we're going to talk about. Like, how do you test corneal sensitivity? And really, I would say, I mean, this is sort of pathognomonic or critical for the diagnosis of NK. What's hard is sort of the middle ground, you know, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, that there is some sensation present and, and how do you know that versus absent, which is fairly obvious. So.
1: You know, in, in those cases, it's just, just like we've talked about MGD over, over the years. You know, it's only non obvious if you're not expressing. So keep expressing. You're going to know what normal <laughs> looks like, what not normal, not so normal looks like. The same thing when it comes to the corneal sensitivity testing. Um, if, if they're there, as I mentioned with, with my protocol, the, the, the technician is not going to put any anesthetic mm-hmm. in there. But, hey, there's times where, oops, they put it in there already. And so you just take it for what it's worth. You, whenever I have that patient back. I'm going to order specific tests for ocular surface, but also in bold, no touch. So don't put any drops inside the eye. Uh, uh, for that patient. There's different ways to to, to to test corneal sensitivity, but the main thing is, once again, if they have the risk factors, grade two stating or higher, this is something that we do need to consider. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I typically use the, the cotton, cotton wisp, mm-hmm. and so I'll just take my forceps and tweeze it out and make mm-hmm. a little point, and then test on the various regions, central, and then the various quadrants, superior, inferior, nasal, and temporal.
0: Is that the order that you go?
1: Yeah, like, let me walk myself. <laughs> let, me think. let me walk myself. <laughs> just do it. Yeah. It, it, it is is the main thing, and you know, and, and so for many patients, I do that. I don't do it every single time, but I think the big takeaway is check corneal sensitivity mm-hmm. as even if it's just the central, but just get in the habit because then you're going to know what is normal because they're going to kick you or to flinch back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what is well, I can kind of feel it, or you're just touching that eye and they're not moving. Mm-hmm. On, on those
0: cases. Well, especially if you think it's unilateral. Like. Like you yeah. know, you do have their hep- herpetic patient, but you can have differences between the eyes. Even in, like in a diabetic patient, you can have differences. So it's kind of a, I think important to sort of pay attention to: is there a difference between the eyes, and like how much of a difference?
1: And test the good eye first. Yes, because then you're going to have a better sensation of what's normal, and then we'll be able to compare it to the other eye.
0: Yeah, and present, absent, or reduced is a good way to kind of think about recording it in your record. So, of course, we've learned for years that the central cornea is the most sensitive, so that's going to give you your, you know, strongest response in a normal patient. Um, And certainly if you have a case in which you have some opacity that can tell you, especially in a herpetic opacity, you know, that's probably going to be the area of reduced sensitivity or loss of sensitivity. But it does fall with age, so if you're trying to get a baseline for what it normal is, checking normal patients and younger patients probably will give you an idea, but also remember that it does fall with age. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because there, there was this sort of dogma that, that there was a difference by iris color, and I'm, I'm glad to see that most studies have shown now that there's really no difference in that. So here's an example behind the slit lamp. Is that what your cotton whisk generally looks like?
1: It's not always always that. I know that perfect, <laughs> but I try to get like that. And so here, yeah, this is this great video just showing the procedure being done. And we just mentioned a cotton swab you can use, the whisk the dental floss. Uh, in clinical research, oftentimes, cochet binet esthesiometer is something that is also available. And there's actually newer technology, non-contact mm-hmm. uh, esthesiometer, which essentially like an air puff almost, mm-hmm. is the best way to describe it. Uh, normal is going to be one, reduced is a five, and, and it's another way to, to quantify it mm-hmm. and objectively for the, for those patients.
0: Yeah, and that's not available yet, is it? No, it's not Soon, soon to come, and I think it's mountable to the slit lab, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So this patient here, obviously, tapping on her cornea, and she's not experiencing anything. I mean, she's blinking because she has to, but really she's, she's demonstrating in the inferior cornea there that she's had a loss of sensation. So I think, you know, here's, there's some additional words you see here, normal, hyposthesia, or anesthesia, and if you would like to use those more complicated words, you can, but I think the simple way is a little bit better. Um, and to mention, if you do have a Cachet-Binet esthesiometer, or you remember that from school, that is something you can do, too, and it does give you a number, because it has a filament that sort of rolls out, and then you do a, you know, a series of tests, moving it to different lengths to see if they feel it or not. So that's used, and you'll see that written up when you do read about these papers where they've done that and tested it over time, so you'll see that. This doesn't easily translate to clinical care, though you done it?
1: Uh, yes, I, I've done it. And here's the, the steps with the anesthesiometer. And so it's, a, it's essentially a nylon monofilament uh, that, that comes up to six centimeters in size. And as you can see, you retract the fil- the filament until the patient can feel the, the, the sensation on their eyes. And then we just document that. And you do it in various quadrants mm-hmm. uh, as well. Yeah, I haven't so done it in a while.
0: Yeah, no. And it's <laughs> not necessarily a small instrument either. Yeah. I mean, it, it has some... Yeah. It can be a little intimidating, and you do kind of have to do it in, in free space. It's yeah. not something that you can hit do behind this little amp. So if you were to give some tips, some final tips about measuring corneal sensitivity, what would they be?
1: Uh, when it comes to tips is test, all right? Mm-hmm. Just look, uh, just just make sure we're seeing, is it present, reduced, or absent? Using those, those consensus pearls, the grade two plus or higher, think corneal sensitivity, think NK, once you do the test, if it's reduced, then we already know that this patient's going uh, down this NK road and mm-hmm. something that we do need to intervene with.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not hard. It just takes a little bit more time, and you have to remind your staff not to touch, as touch, you would say, yeah. or put any drops in before you do it. But if, in the worst-case scenario, if you have to have them back and you have a big chart note to do it next time, the most important part is actually measuring it when you see no response and remembering that your diabetic patients could be a, a group that you're missing. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks. This has been great
1: chatting with you. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm.